So we begin at Romans 13 and verse 1 this morning. I'll read through verse 7, and we'll be considering the first two verses. It says, There let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. We are rather for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So let us pray together. Lord, we pray that your word would, by your spirit, convict and convince, even rebuke us if needed this morning. We confess, Lord, our sins again to you, that we are in need of the forgiveness of those sins through Jesus Christ, and we are in need of the power of your spirit to follow him and to follow your law, your commandments, which are all very good. So we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word in spite of us here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some people might be surprised to hear that the founding of this nation was, at least in part, due to Presbyterian Christians. One historian estimates that two-thirds of the revolutionary forefathers were, in his words, trained Calvinists. That same historian says that when Cornwallis was forced to surrender at Yorktown, with the exception of one, all of the colonels were Presbyterian elders in that battle. And of course, George III, King George III, called the War for Independence the Presbyterian War or Revolt. And so it's not my purpose this morning, or even as we go through Romans 13, to justify or discuss whether or not that war was legitimate. That's a whole other topic for another time. But I will say I'm thankful to be born in this nation, and I will say that our confession does talk about a just and necessary war, and you can explore that doctrine of the lesser magistrate on your own. No, my purpose right now is to say this. The Presbyterians have a bit of what we could call an independent spirit. Maybe we get that from our forefathers, or maybe we get it from the Word of God. But we have to explore our own hearts and see from where this independent spirit comes. We don't like to be told what to do, and we surely don't want to be told by the government what we are to do. And so, as we read this passage, uh, 
this, as well as other parts of God's Word, will keep that independent spirit in check. And it is needed, I think. At least it is in my heart. I'll confess that this morning um, as, as I consider what the Apostle Paul says here. I mean, he's talking about honor, he's talking about taxes, and he's talking about submission to the civil authorities. But as we see, the Word of God here, Holy Scripture, calls all men to be subject to their civil authorities. And so the principle is there in verse 1. He says, let every soul be subject to to the governing authorities. He says, let them be subject to the governing authorities. When he's talking about here the governing authorities, I think it's clear from the original and the context that he is talking about civil authority in particular. After all, he talks about the sword a little later in the passage, and the sword was the uh, means of war and execution in those days. And so the sword was that way by which the civil government not only waged war, but also the way that they enforced their laws, and the Romans at least in part. And so he's talking about civil government. And he says that we are to be in subjection to them. Uh, This word here, um, you perhaps have heard before in the Greek when it talks about submitting. Uh, Hupotasso is the word, and it's used in Ephesians 5 where Paul says that Christians are to be subject to one another, they're they're to submit to one another. And also it says there that wives are to submit to their husbands. Elsewhere in Scripture, in Titus 2.9, it says that bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. And of course, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27, one day all will be made subject to the authority of Christ. He's already been raised. He's already ascended on high and seated at the right hand of God the Father. He right now is King of kings and Lord of lords. But as Hebrews puts it, we don't see all things under his feet as of yet. That time will come at the time of his second coming. And so when we see what the Bible says here, we are to put ourselves into subjection to the civil authorities that be in our own land. And we see the scope here of this command. He says, let every soul, uh, some of your translations might say, like the NASB, every person must be, or the NIV says every one. The Greek literally says every soul, and it means every person, every human being must be. Every individual must be subject to his or her governing authority. That's what it says in our text. And so, the biblical teaching is that all men are to put themselves into subjection to the local government, the civil authorities that be. And so, next, Paul gives the reason for this. It's not only something that he states, it's not something he made up as an apostle. He, of course, Uh, did have apostolic authority and represented the Lord Jesus Christ. He was infallible when it came to teaching the Word of God and the words that we have written and recorded for us in Scripture. But he gives the reason as to why he lays out this command. Now, let me just provide a little bit of the context here 
because I think this is important for us to understand as well. Um, his concern is that the church of Jesus Christ in his day was not seen as an insurrection bunch. His concern was that Christians did not come across as those who were ready to overthrow the civil authorities in existence in his day. Uh, perhaps you know that in 63 years before Christ, that Pompey and the Romans came into Jerusalem, they conquered it, they took it. And so the Israelites and Jewish people found themselves under Roman rule. And the Romans, what they would often do is when they invaded a place, they would take one of their people and make that person uh, a leader to represent their government, their rule, their law, and that land. And so they did that in Jerusalem. They would take the Herods. And so the Herods were not liked very well by the Jewish people because they ruled on behalf of the Romans, and they were seen sometimes as traitors. And so what would happen is... Uh, that the Jewish people had a history of insurrection with the Romans. After all, did not Deuteronomy 17 and verse 15 tell them that God would be the one who would give them their ruler, their king? It says this back in Deuteronomy 17 and 15. It says that God was telling them there that he would set a king over them. And it says that they, or that the Lord your God shall choose. And so under God's law, he told them he would select for himself the king that would rule over them. Of course, they rejected God's rule. They wanted a Saul, so they got a Saul. But eventually, there was a man after God's own heart, King David. And so there's this question eventually, well, okay, so if there's this Roman rule in our land, are we supposed to submit to him and pay him honor? Because after all, did the Lord choose this man to rule over us? And so that was part of their history. They would ask the question, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? And we read Matthew 22 that this question was posed to, to Jesus, right? Is it lawful to pay tribute or taxes to Caesar? And we'll talk about that more in detail a little later. Even at the crucifixion, there was a criminal on the cross next to Jesus, Barabbas who not only was convicted of murder, but insurrection. And even after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, the Christians at Rome, I should say, um, there began, a few years later, more insurrection on the part of the Jews against Rome. So you take that history with the Jewish people, and their plots against the Roman authorities. All eyes were on the Christians. All eyes politically were on those who called themselves little Christians or little Christ. That's what Christian means. The disciples of the Lord Jesus. Would they too try to overthrow the Roman rule wherever they are? So you had that, but also... Early in the apostolic church, we find that the civil authorities were not so kind to Christians, right? Because the Jewish people, they used their rule, which was under Roman rule, to um, tell the apostles that they may not preach in the name of Jesus. 
In fact, some of the early Christians were thrown in jail. Just read the book of Acts. So you had all of this going on, and Paul here lays down this principle, be subject to the governing authorities that be. But he has a greater concern than that. It's not only this practical, um, we could say optic in our day and time. It's not only that, but it's, it, it goes deeper than that. He talks about the origin of government. He says there in verse 13, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, when it comes to the institution of civil government, that definitely comes from God. Men often point to Genesis 9-6, which talks about the death penalty, If a man sheds innocent blood, I'm paraphrasing it, it says there, uh, by man his blood shall be shed, for he was made in the image of God. And so there has to be some form of government to protect people and to enforce that law. And by the way, I think careful men have noted the various types of government. Um, In Galatians 5, it talks about self-control being a fruit of the Spirit. So there's self-government, there's family government, there's church government, and there's civil government. Historically, that's what men have noted. But God is the one who has ordained the institution of civil government. But Paul, he doesn't spend so much time on that as he talks about God's sovereignty and God's providence. This goes back to God being the creator and the one who oversees and governs all of the affairs of men. And so will we submit to God and his providence? That's the issue that Paul brings up here. As the creator, the sovereign creator, uh, Paul acknowledges that God is the authority and that in his providence he has established the powers that be in his own wisdom, and for his own purposes. He says there in verse 13, There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, elsewhere, Scripture reminds us of this fact. Um, Earlier, remember Paul's talking about salvation. He's talking about election, the sovereignty of God and salvation. And he, he points to Pharaoh. And how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How Pharaoh hardened his heart. But the sovereignty of God over Pharaoh. And in Romans 9 and verse 17, Paul says this, quoting from Exodus. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I, this is God speaking, I have raised you up. That I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And so when you think about it, if we did not have that knowledge, if God's people didn't have that knowledge back then and the sovereignty of God, perhaps they would think all is lost because there they are in Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh. But God had specific purpose in allowing Pharaoh to rise to power and to take control of his people. And ultimately that was for his own glory. And to show forth his power and 
his redemption, his salvation of his people. In Acts 17, 26, Paul is preaching to the Greeks, and he speaks of God, and he says, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. The sovereignty of God in nation-making doesn't mean that everything these nations do is good, but God is sovereign over them, and God has determined in space and time their dwellings and their boundaries. In Daniel 2.21, it says this, speaking of God, it says, and He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In John 19 and verse 11, there is Jesus on trial, staring at Pontius Pilate. And he says this to Pontius Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So even Pontius Pilate could have no authority and power over the Lord Jesus unless God the Father granted that to Pontius Pilate. And so, yes, even today, our rulers, our president, whomever it might be in our land across the globe, they have been placed there ultimately by God under His sovereignty. And again, we've talked about the sovereignty of God versus man's responsibility. In Acts 2.23, I think it is, Peter says that you, the Jews, have taken Jesus with your wicked hands and have crucified him. And at the same time, he says this is all according to the predetermined plan of God. So both are true. God's sovereignty, his providence over a situation, and even when it comes to evil. So if there is an evil society or an evil government that reigns, God is overseeing that. Doesn't mean he condones the evil. He hates it. But God is still in control. <clears throat> and so Paul reasons here that since God is the ultimate authority, all authority must come from him. And we could say all authority is delegated authority. You children and young people and some of us adults, this is why historically Christians have said, respect your authority. Because we acknowledge that God is the one who has placed authority over us. In one of our teaching documents, the larger catechism, it talks about the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And it says this, who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? It answers, by father and mother... And the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. And so when you search the scriptures, you'll find in 2 Kings 5.13 that a servant there calls his master father. You'll find in 2 Kings 2.12 that Elisha the prophet calls his mentor Elijah father. 
you'll find in Isaiah 49, 23, that God says to his people, kings shall be your nursing fathers and your queens your nursing mothers. And so you see the scope of the fifth commandment, it applies to all authority. And so whether it's a teacher, an employer, a boss, a police officer, a councilman, or the president, they are our authority. And we are to submit to them. Now, as you're sitting there, because we're a bunch of Presbyterians, I know you have questions, or just you're, you're a thinker, and you're thinking through this, okay? And maybe we want a, a, an easy way out or something, but there are legitimate questions to this, right? For instance, must men obey the magistrate if that magistrate is wicked or ungodly? That's a legitimate question. Well, as Hodge notes, commenting on this passage, he says this, Uh, Magistrates are to be obeyed because they derive their authority from God. And then he says, whether their authority be legitimate or usurped, whether they are just or unjust. Think about who was in authority when Paul wrote this letter. Who was the emperor of Rome when Paul wrote this letter. The emperor of Rome, when Paul wrote this letter, was the emperor who allegedly had his mother killed if he didn't do it himself. It was the emperor whose reign was characterized by debauchery and tyranny. It was the emperor, we're told, allegedly, that had Rome burned so that he could rebuild it in his own image. It was the emperor who would persecute Christians and set them on fire in his garden at night so he could have garden parties. Nero, emperor of Rome, the tyrant. And so Paul tells us we are to submit to the authorities that be. Think about Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. In the Old Testament, think about Cyrus. God is sovereign over all of these men. And even in 1 Peter 3, 1, we go from the greater to the lesser. Uh, Peter says there that Christian wives are to be subject to their husbands, even if some do not obey the word, if they're non-Christians and are ungodly. Now, do I think Peter means that The Christian wife is to submit in everything to her unbelieving husband? No, we've already established that. We can go from the lesser to the greater, the greater to the lesser when it comes to authority. Another question would be, does the magistrate have unlimited power over its its citizens? So has God given a blank check of power to the authorities that be in the civil sphere? Well, think about it. No, even they are subject to the authority and headship of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? It talks about how the rulers, they plot against the Lord and against His anointed, His Christ, Jesus Himself. But God in heaven, He laughs at that. And it goes on to say that they need to bow. They need to kiss the Son. They need to worship Jesus 
lest they be smashed as the potter's vessel. And then it says that if they turn and if they trust in Him, they will be saved. They are accountable to God too for even how they rule, for their words, for their actions, for how they rule. So if it's a Christian monarch or a Hitler, they all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. But also it says in Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so for those who want to put politics out of the sphere of Christianity in the Bible, you can't do it. Jesus says, you're either with me or against me. There is no neutrality. So you're either against Christ or for him. We have to understand as well that when Paul gives this principle, we have to understand when we take into consideration the whole counsel of God that we apply this when there is a lawful authority or lawful command. We'll talk about the purpose of government a little later Not today, but Lord willing, at a later time. But here's the principle we need to remember. If we as Christians are forced into a dilemma, either to obey God or to obey the civil magistrate, we always, always obey God. Remember Acts chapter 5, the civil authorities came, they said to the apostles, you may not preach in this name. What did they say? Acts 5, 29. We ought to obey God rather than man. Now, when you do that, you also must be willing to pay the consequences. You're taking a stand for God. You're taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and His government over you when you do that. And the early church, many of them, even Paul, he ended up in prison. Some of them were executed for being Christians. And it takes faith, doesn't it, to do that very thing, to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't pray for that. I hope that doesn't come in our nation. But if it ever does, we, we know what we are to do. And by the way, the, the old principle uh, that some of our Uh, Christian founding fathers used when it came to the founding of our nation was something like this. There was the, the, the principle of plea, rather, yeah, plea, flee, fight. We would have to unpack that and explore it. But you plea with the civil magistrate, this is not right. What you're saying, what you're doing, this is not right. Please reconsider. Respectfully, you honor them. You plead with them. And in Matthew 24, remember, Jesus is talking about the coming invasion of the Romans in A.D. 70 to Jerusalem. And he says to them there, to those who were in Judea, when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, flee to the mountains. And then if you flee and you have nowhere else to go, and it becomes a matter of self-defense, you may, under God's law, fight. Again, in the Old Testament, if someone comes into your house, they rob you. It's nighttime. You don't see them, but you know they're in there. 
according to God's law, you have the right to defend yourself and to kill that person. That's not murder. Hopefully, we never have to do that. But someone comes to your house. And so if you plea and you flee, and then the government pursues and comes after you, then you have that right. That's what men have argued in the past. Well, another question would be, may Christians serve in the civil government? Of course, I I think the answer is, of course, yes. I mean, in the Old Testament, there was Joseph who, um, his brothers, remember, left him for dead, but God used him in the civil government to spare his people during the famine. After him, there was Nehemiah, there's Daniel, Daniel who outlives different regimes uh, in Babylon and that land there. But we have to understand that politics, politics, that's a new one. <laughs> politics will not change the hearts of men. And politics is dirty. It's dirty and corrupt. It's been said time and again, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's kind of like the chicken or the egg. Do people go into politics because they want power, or do they go into politics and see what power they can have, and they become corrupt and all of that? I've had Christian friends who have been involved in politics, and, and they got out. But remember, as the church of Christ, we are to be as the conscience of our land, to say, to be ready, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to, to have an answer prepared, uh, to give that ready defense for the hope that is within us. And to say, this is not right. You know, what you're doing here, this is not right. To speak the truth. To speak it in love. Don't forget that part, Ephesians 4 says. Christians may serve in civil government and should. And should uphold the word of God. God's law, His commandments, wherever they serve. Today little sidetrack. People, they take polls, they see what the people want and uh, what is probable, how far can I get with this policy? Well, well, that's hogwash. The Christian should say, God has placed me into this position. God says this, therefore the law should be this in light of God's law. Pretty simple. Um, What about the separation of church and state, since I've said that? Well, there is a biblical separation of church and state. Now, when people today say, Christians, you have to shut up, you have to go hide in your bedroom, and you can't come out until it's time to pay taxes, um, well, they, they often tell us separation of church and state, separation of church and state. Well, that's a misnomer. Check it out when it comes to our Constitution. But there is a biblical separation. There are these two different spheres, and uh, we see that in the Old Testament with uh, Nehemiah, who represented the state. There was uh, Ezra, the priest, who represented the church. They were two different men serving two different realms, both under God. Before that, there was Moses and Aaron, and of course, there's Hezekiah. Uh, Isaiah talks about this, and Second Chronicles 26 talks about this. Hezekiah, the king, went into the temple and offered sacrifice. Well, he crossed that boundary, that biblical separation of powers. So God struck him with leprosy. And that was the reason why. The state, as Paul says here in Romans 13, holds the power of the sword. It is the church, 
the church of Jesus Christ alone that holds the keys of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ and church authority and all of those things. And so Paul says, yes, we are to submit. He says we are to submit because every power that exists is appointed by God. But what if I don't? What what if we do begin an insurrection or we do disobey a lawful, a lawful command of the civil magistrate? Well, Paul warns us here. He tells us about the seriousness of breaching this principle. He uses good logic. Um, He says in verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority Resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So Paul is saying, submit to every authority. Why? Because every authority has been appointed by God. And by the way, if you resist that authority, then you resist God himself. Why? Because that authority was appointed by God himself. And in the original, he puts it this way. Um, He says it is the of God ordinance. If you look there, verse 2, he says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the of God ordinance. He reverses the order to place emphasis on the fact that this is from God. What is the ordinance? It is the rule, the statute, the command of God. And so those who resist, those who oppose, those who rebel, he says in verse 2, will bring judgment on themselves. So the question is, when Paul says they'll bring bring judgment on themselves, is he talking about the judgment of the civil magistrate or the judgment of God? I would just say yes. Because you read the passage, uh, it seems to go either way. He talks about uh, the civil government uh, being a terror to evil, to those who disobey and do evil. God, by the way, determines right from wrong, good from evil. He says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister. And he goes on and on and on. And so, yes, we will be held accountable even as Christians. We are forgiven. We have been justified. We have eternal life. No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. But we will stand before him at the day of judgment to give an account for how we live this Christian life. And praise God, our good works will be covered in the blood of Christ. But we still must give an account to God for how we've lived this life. And so Paul reminds us of the future, the, uh, the time at which we'll stand before God, but also here even the near future if we disobey by doing evil, if we disobey the civil authority. And so we must understand this again in the context of a lawful command. If they require that we do something that God tells us not to do, we do not do it. The whole counsel of God teaches us this very, very thing. And also, when, when I think about this text too, I, I have to think about the time in which we live to make application, right? So you're probably thinking, you probably thought about this before, how do I apply this today in my context, in my time? It's pretty clear. 
we resist, we resist God himself who's given us these authorities. And at, at the same time, part of the authority that we have is a representative form of government. We have a constitution. The founders set it up like this. And so my point is, there may be a time where we can plead uh, with our authorities based on the law of the land, knowing our, quote, rights as an American citizen. Paul did this as he stood before the authorities in the book of Acts. He pled his rights as a Roman citizen. And so too may we. And by the way, go back and look at Isaiah 33, 22, because there you'll find the basis of our three branches of government. I think it says the Lord is our king, the Lord is our lawgiver, and he executes justice or something like that. And so we have uh, the legislative, the executive, and uh, the other branch of government I can't remember right now. Judicial? So, that's very interesting. But Paul here reminds us as Christians that we are to submit to the authorities that be. Because God has established all authority. And brothers and sisters, let us not forget, this includes the authority of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, who in Matthew 28 says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The one Revelation 1.5 says, Is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So our message at some times might be king, queen, congress, local officials. Um, you owe your allegiance to the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Will you serve him this day in what you are doing? You're about to change the foundation of society and redefine marriage, gender, whatever it is. So will you reign in such a way that reflects the one who rules and reigns over you? And the end of time will come. And at that time, 1 Corinthians 24, 15, 24 says that when or after Jesus puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, that's what he will do when he returns. And it says this, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And so until then, until the second coming of Christ, God has ordained civil government so that there might be some degree of peace and order in society. As James Boyce put it, God has given a civil government to avoid anarchy. But the reason God has done that is so that the church may continue her work. So that the church may continue making disciples of the nations. And so therefore let us continue to submit to God's government, to His holy word, by submitting to the lawful requirements of our civil magistrates. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to know that you are sovereign, in control. As your word says, you do all your holy will. You work all things according to the counsel of your own will. 
And Father, at times that means judgment for lands. But we're thankful, Lord, to know that we are, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And Christ is our king. And he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Help us to apply this principle that you've given to us through your apostle, our authority, who represented the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.